Well, so great to be up here with you all and look at a tremendous theme of the resurrection. I know I've been reading and studying and, and thinking about it and such a blessing to come at from so many different angles. You'll see so many points that you haven't been thinking of, how the resurrection fits into our faith overall. And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll look at the first section of verses, verses 1 through 11, this morning. And what I intend to do is to make a defense for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what we must do. There are, obviously there's two categories. There are those who believe in the resurrection, and there are those who do not believe in the resurrection. I know the majority of you, or I think the majority of you do believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That when you believe the gospel, you knew it was a vital part of the good news. That you look forward to resurrection life. You believe in Christ who rose from the dead. We don't want to believe in a, a dead man who gives us no hope for eternal life or resurrection life. But I know there are many of you, and it may even be... Uh, as your faith is going on, that you have doubts about the resurrection. That as you're thinking about it deeply at our camp here, there may be questions being generated, maybe a little bit of doubt there in, in terms of you want to know more, you want to investigate more, or you are not yet completely convinced, and maybe you are learning that about yourself. But as we make a defense for the resurrection of Jesus, it will help us to grow in our faith, It will help us, whether we have believed for a long time, to continue to solidify that foundation. Or if you're not sure, then we will see many points giving answers to why we should believe the resurrection. We'll use scripture, we'll use reason, we'll use evidence, so that we might believe in the resurrection, gain greater confidence in that. To believe the gospel and to be a Christian means to believe the extraordinary claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And as we've been mentioning our great hope, and I'm looking forward to the message tonight as well, what that means for us in our resurrection life in the future. We celebrate this every time we celebrate Easter every year. It's such a joyous day that Christ did not remain in the grave, and we celebrate that. We invite others to come and worship and and to um, hear of the resurrection as well. First, we want to define the resurrection. What exactly do we mean by that? It means that Jesus rose physically and bodily from the dead. That he physically died, his heart stopped beating, his brainwave ceased, his physical organs shut down. They were not functioning for at least three days as he laid in the tomb. And then he was resurrected. He was completely transformed. He received a new body. So he wasn't just healed and brought back from the dead, such as Lazarus and others in Scripture, but he received a completely transformed body that was no longer subject to the weaknesses of the effects of sin in our lives now. This is a teaching that leads us to understand what our future resurrected bodies will be like. And so this is very amazing as we're thinking about the resurrection That's a simple description that he rose again, that he received a new and transformed body without the effects of sin, not subject to the curse, not subject to sicknesses or sadness or death. It's been said that these are new creation bodies, 
that they will fit us for eternity. They'll fit us for the new earth and the new creation and with fellowship with God and with other saints forever. Our resurrection bodies are like the resurrected bodies, body of Jesus Christ. It's described as incorruptible, glorious, powerful, controlled by the Spirit, without the sin principle of the flesh of our old bodies. And it's, again, a simple description, but that amazing experience that we're looking forward to is our hope of resurrection life. The second, we want to be aware of the doubts that people have about the resurrection. So it's easy to doubt. It's easy to say, well, I don't believe the resurrection for a variety of reasons. And we'll dig very deeply into that. So first, during our time, most do not believe or say they don't believe the resurrection because overall they do not believe miracles happen or they think it's scientific to, to believe that only nature exists. So we won't go super deep into this. It's called naturalism. There are uh, very long books and messages on that alone. But just that claim that only nature exists, so only the periodic table of elements, only energy, and so on. But naturalism has many problems, which I'll mention briefly. Like I said, it's a huge discussion. But there are many things that do not fit into the natural box. That there are experiences through history as well as today, thousands and millions of accounts of people who say, I experienced something that I would call supernatural and not just natural. So, for example, philosophical ideas. So what are, what are ideas made out of? Morality, values, free will... Uh, our own consciousness, dreams, near-death experiences, you could say demonic possessions, people who have claimed to witness miracles all through history and even today. I know there are books that uh, have near-death experiences um, that, that recount them, many different accounts. They've been collected by those who are looking for them. Sometimes the uh, after-death experiences, they talk about the soul leaving the body and the people actually give answers of experiencing things that they could not have experienced because they were uh, near death. Also, there are books uh, accounted by physicians who say they have seen miraculous healings in their profession. So as the doctors who are treating people, one day there's a disease, the next day there is not a disease. And they say something supernatural happened for a healing. But all that to say, naturalism does not explain all of the experiences that people have. And even here, whatever experiences you might have had that you would say are supernatural, maybe it was some intuition, maybe as we, we want to think of as Christians, an answer to prayer. These things that don't fit in that box. And so naturalism is not convincing. Second, there's historical skepticism. Those who say they do not trust the biblical documents, um, that from the very beginning, from everything we know from history, as we'll look at today, that they just don't believe the records that we have in the New Testament or the other historical writings during that time. But this is actually a radically skeptical claim that if we were to follow that same approach with all of history, we would really not know much of anything about human history. That, in, in a nutshell, how would we know something happened that time that long ago. People saw it, and they wrote down what they saw. And they left behind other artifacts, too. Maybe they chiseled the message into some rocks, or maybe they said a battle happened, and we can find the artifacts from there. But that's how we know history, written accounts and what they left behind. Now, there were also those who doubted the resurrection 
in the church of Corinth. So there were doubters all the way from the beginning. So this isn't uh, something 2,000 years later that's made up where people are saying, oh, I don't believe in the resurrection. No, they had a doubt back then too. And as I said, either they had, you have two categories, either they believed in the resurrection or they did not. And Paul went around, he would preach the gospel, and the resurrection would be central, and people would either believe it, or they would not believe it. In verse 12, if you look with me there, as Pastor David read last night, but there was doubt in the same time as the church was moving forward and the gospel was being proclaimed. So verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, There is no resurrection from the dead. So Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, he's answering this question. That there were these doubts, there was the skepticism all the way back from the very beginning. Even the day after, the weeks after, the months after Jesus rose from the dead, there were already those saying, oh, we do not believe he rose from the dead. I'll do an open question here, see if you were listening uh, last night to David. What did he say was the main reason that they were not believing the resurrection in the church in Corinth. Might have to give some uh, camp points for, for this one, yeah. Go ahead and raise a hand and... Oh, well, oh okay. Whew. Anyone want to shoot an shoot a arrow here? There, yes. Because of the belief that the body was bad and only the spirit was good? Yes. So they had a belief called dualism. And the philosophy during that time, they highly prized, you could say, immaterial entities or the non-physical. So they thought it was actually going to be good when they died. They left their body behind and they would have some type of spiritual, immaterial existence for the rest of time. So they thought the body was uh, degraded and bad and, and so on. So that was their belief system during that time. And that's why they were doubting it. They were thinking, and why they reacted many times, why would you want to be resurrected? They, they even described the body sometimes as a prison for the soul. So they were thinking, why would you want to go back to prison and have a resurrected body someday? So there were doubters, even from the beginning, that this is nothing new. Whether they doubt because they... Uh, it's interesting, the polar opposites, right? Back then, they thought, oh, we don't like the physical. Now today, people say only the physical exists. So there are doubts on either side. So Paul gives us a masterful defense here in 1 Corinthians 15. He dedicates a whole chapter to the subject of the resurrection, which we're thankful for as we'll be looking at and going through all of the different sections. So our guiding question for this morning, why should I believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened? If we're going to answer a question, we need to have it clear before us, believing the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. And Paul starts off here. He gives a masterful defense. He gives us four reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Four reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first reason Paul gives us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that it's central to the gospel. In verses 1 through 3, that is central to the gospel. He says, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which you are also saved. If you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul reminds them that they received the good news. 
The church there at Corinth had been there for seven or eight years by this point, and he knows that when he preached the gospel that the resurrection was central to the gospel. It was the good news, and those who truly believed had been believing in the resurrection for at least seven years by this point. It says the first members of the church, they received the good news, they heard that Jesus died for sins, they heard that He rose again with resurrection life, and that is what they believed. So He's challenging them on that here. It says in the first verse, they continue to stand in this message, they're remaining steadfast, those who believed are still persevering in this truth, and probably the the core believers there were holding fast to the resurrection, but now doubters were coming in. Or those who really didn't believe in the first place were raising up doubts or even denying the resurrection. So you had the core Christians in the church saying, no, the resurrection is central to our faith. And then some others were saying, maybe we can have the gospel message without the resurrection. But the resurrection is central to the gospel. Paul had preached it. Romans 10, 9, and 10. He says, this is a profession of faith unto salvation. He said, the word of faith which you are preaching... That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So Paul makes it clear, if you deny the resurrection, you deny the gospel. Because the hope of the resurrection life and the resurrection body after death is good news. I really like how he makes the point here that the gospel cannot be accepted as piecemeal. If you deny the resurrection or any part of the gospel, even as he said in Galatians, remember if he said, if anyone preaches another gospel, let them be accursed in Galatians 1.8. He says you can't take part of it and believe it and not believe another part. That's not the good news. You also can't add to the gospel because that is not good news. So he's reminding the Corinthians when they first believed a number of years now, the resurrection is not negotiable. They professed belief in the resurrection when they first believed. They'd been standing firm in it until now, where these doubts were infiltrating the church, and they were beginning to grow. In verse 2, let's read verse 2 here. He says, You are also saved by it, if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe to no purpose or believed in vain. Paul points out that the salvation and the transformation of many of the Corinthian lives when they were saved. There were definitely true believers at Corinth. He even greets them as saints. They believed the gospel. They believed that their sins were paid for on the cross. They believed they had eternal life. They believed they started a love relationship with Jesus Christ who rose again. They believed He sat at the right hand of the Father in His resurrected body. And they had their hope in the resurrection. There were true believers at Corinth. Paul also appeals to the transformed lives. When people get saved, their lives are transformed. Their old sinful lives go away, left behind, and their character changes to be more like Christ. In 2 Corinthians, that's where he says, you are all now new creations. And the Corinthians knew all around them. They saw people's lives completely transformed. They were saved out of the background of idolatry, promiscuity, liars, thieves, extortioners, and all the rest. The power of the gospel saved them and transformed their lives. Then he says that they are to hold firmly to the word, including the truth of the resurrection. It transformed their lives. They are supposed to persevere in this. They're persevering in the face of false teaching of those who are denying the resurrection. At the end of verse 2, it gives a challenge. 
It is possible that some among the congregation, even from the beginning, believed in vain. Meaning that possibly they never fully believed in the resurrection in the first place. Maybe they had not put their faith in the gospel or the resurrection. Jesus gave the parable of the soils. You remember that? The seeds were sown on different soils. Some were excited about it, maybe professed that they believed. But then all this time later, they were finding out, oh, I never really believed the resurrection or they had serious doubts from the very beginning. Some of them who were in the church. Maybe some of them were first excited. They saw miraculous works, miraculous gifts, so they believed, but then later on they realized, no, I actually did not believe in the gospel. Paul often tells us as Christians to examine our faith, make sure it is sincere, make sure it is genuine, not to have vain or empty professions, and this is supposed to be helpful for us. We examine ourselves, we want to find answers, we want to study, and we want to uh, continue to build the foundation of our faith. And Paul tells those with doubts, Examine themselves. Examine if you truly believed. Because this is a shocking denial. A vital part of the gospel, it means they in fact never believed the gospel in the first place for those who are outright denying the resurrection. And let's look at the first part of verse 3 as it fits in with our point here. He says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. I include this verse because it powerfully makes the case that the resurrection was central and non-negotiable to the gospel. Paul uses very specific language here. He's talking about the authoritative teaching that was being handed down. Many ancient civilization had oral or spoken cultures, and they would pass down their stories, they would pass down their wisdom, they would pass down their teachings by word of mouth. They would retell these stories over and over again from generation to generation. The rabbis had a practice of this, the rabbis of the Jews. They passed down many teachings and history this way to their students generation after generation. They saw it as their role to safeguard this tradition. They wanted to faithfully pass it on to the next generation. They didn't want to change these teachings or subtract from them. So that's why they would use this language. I'm passing on to you what I received from these uh, teachers over time and their interpretations. Scholars recognize, so those who are studying the words and what Paul is saying, that Paul is using specific language here. This is authoritative teaching that he's passing on, the central message of Christianity and the gospel. Paul makes the point that he received this message, he didn't make it up, he didn't change it, he didn't add to it, he didn't subtract to it, uh, subtract from it, but it was verified by eyewitnesses, and it was received by him as a solemn charge to proclaim to others as the good news and the gospel. Passing on this traditional teaching was a solemn charge. It would have been considered uh, sinister for Paul to change the message. If he received it and then he tweaked it or changed it and then passed it on, then it would be seen as very deceitful by him or by those who passed on traditional teaching. From these next verses, we see the core of what was passed on. Just a very short and direct statement of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins and he rose again on the third day. It was as simple as direct and as direct as that. It was a gospel that was taught and believed and proclaimed from the very beginning when the church started in Jerusalem and at least up to 20 plus years at this point while he's talking to the Corinthian church. So the resurrection was central to the gospel. It was only denied by those who were in fact not Christians. They're radical skeptics or those who believe in the philosophy of their time rather than just the teaching of the resurrection. 
The second reason Paul gives us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that the resurrection was predicted in the Old Testament in verses 3 and 4. Predicted in the Old Testament. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. He says, For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The center of God's redemptive plan was that the Messiah would die for sins and that He would conquer death and rise again. The Old Testament had many predictions about the life of Jesus. You can look at many of the prophecies about His birth, about His ministry, about His death, and about His resurrection. These were prophesied hundreds or thousands of years before they even happened. We'll look together at a number of these passages just to make this point. The first one I want you to turn to is Genesis 2.17. Genesis 2.17. Let's have some fun with this one. Does anyone want to read loud and proud Genesis 2.17? All right, over here. Loud and proud, Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right. So from the very beginning, God said, when you eat from the tree, you will surely die. So another question for all of you. Why are we all here alive today? If Adam and Eve just died and and the story of humanity ended then, why is it continuing until now? Okay. Because, and this is maybe hard, I'm not trying to hurt your brains here. Because the plan of God, He had a redemptive plan. That when death entered into the world... When the curse came over creation, you said the consequences of sin is death. Well, if God has a plan for that, what does that mean? It means that death will be conquered. It means that death will be reversed. It means that there is a plan for the resurrection of all those who will face the penalty of death. And that's why even the story of humanity continued. Like I said, all right, Adam and Eve, you're dead. Story over. But it continued. Why? Because death would be conquered in the end. Let's turn to Psalm 1610. We'll just look at a couple verses. So here, the psalmist David writes about hope of life after death. He writes about the Messiah. He says in verse 9, Psalm 16, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, my spirit rejoices, my body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol, you will not allow your faithful one to see the pit or to see decay. So later on in Acts chapter 2, when the apostles are preaching, they reference this a number of times, and Peter directly says, he says, Who is David writing about there? And he even says that the tomb of David was still among them. They knew that David died. He was put into the grave. His body saw decay. And so they said this was a prophecy of the Messiah. 
that he would in fact die, but his body would not see decay. He would be resurrected from the grave. As David was writing, around a thousand years, or maybe 950 around there, before the resurrection of Christ. So the prophecies continue. Let's go to Isaiah 53 for the last one. So we see this tremendous prophecy of Christ's ministry and exactly what he was doing in the atonement, as well as the resurrection here. So Isaiah 53, let's start with verse 5. So it says, But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own ways, and the Lord punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was opposed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like sheep he was silent before the shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death. Although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him, and he made him sick. When you make, he made him a restitution offering. He will see his seed, and he will prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will succeed by his hand. So Isaiah, that tremendous prophecy, especially of the atonement of Christ, that he will pay for sins. Isaiah was writing around 700 years before Christ lived. It's also very clear in that passage that the Messiah would die, right? He was cut off from the land of the living, but then he would see his offspring that in fact he would rise again from the grave. And so we make this point as Paul is saying, as we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the message I'm bringing to you is according to the scriptures. There are other scriptures that we could look at that for, again, since the very beginning, this was God's plan. I also mention Leviticus 17.11. That's where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is not the forgiveness of sins. And then there was a sacrificial system showing us that Jesus would be the sacrifice and that there would be uh, hope. Uh, well, there be forgiveness and then resurrection as well. So Paul wanted to show this was God's plan from the very beginning. It was according to the scriptures. They could look at it. They could investigate it. I always like the name, uh, the Berean Bible Church. The Bereans investigated and examined the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. So a powerful case is made here that the center of the gospel was very serious. It was handed down in this traditional manner. The heart of the gospel was the Messiah paying for sins and conquering death and having resurrection hope. We cannot take the resurrection out. If you take that out, then you take out the heart of the gospel message itself. Now, the third reason Paul gives for us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that the resurrection was observed by eyewitnesses in verses 5 to 7, observed by eyewitnesses. And don't worry, I'll, I'll speed up my pace here. So verses 5 through 7, let's read those. It says, And that he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. So back in ancient times, 
when you would make a case, if you'd make a case in the court of law, or if you were asking, did something happen? There are several verses, and even in ancient law codes, that you needed more than one witness. So it would say, on the basis of two or more witnesses, you would establish a case. And this is the same for us today. If something happens, we want to know who was there. We want to know who saw it and what exactly happened. And then, uh, actually, I want to ask all of you, maybe maybe one of you, um, who is the person that you trust the most? That they might tell you some outlandish, improbable, seemingly impossible thing, but you would believe them because you know who they are. And if they were telling you in all seriousness that it happened, that you would trust them. Maybe I'll just take one, one answer on that one. Everyone here is like, I don't trust anybody. Yeah. <laughs> your parents, right. So, so if they came to you in all seriousness, right, they're looking in your eyes saying, we saw this thing, you won't believe it, you'd say, I believe you. You know, I'm not questioning your, your character or thinking you're lying to me or deceiving me or something, but I trust what you are saying. And this is how we evaluate witnesses. If they claim that they saw something, we have a lot of questions about who they are and, and where they were when they saw this. And I want to be detailed on the questions we can ask witnesses to evaluate them, and then we'll go through the witnesses quickly in the list that Paul gave us. And so when we're investigating here, if someone claims, I saw the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of questions we can ask any witness that we hear some type of extraordinary claim. We can ask, what was their background beliefs? Uh, this is the question of background. Maybe if you want to make a, a list here. So the question of background. Background beliefs. Do they believe that honesty is a virtue? Maybe they have some type of uh, virtue flaw. Do they believe some type of belief system that makes them interpret what they saw the wrong way? So, you know, maybe the wind was blowing. Oh, that was a ghost or something. And it was not a ghost. How was the belief understood with the background beliefs during that time? So the context of what was believed there. Why would the resurrection not be believed during that time? We answered that. Why is the resurrection not believed today? Number two, you have the character questions. Are they usually trustworthy? Trustworthy? Could they have been mistaken? Or maybe are they a deceitful person? Number three, you have opportunity. Did they have the opportunity to witness the event? Were they at the right time, in the right place? Are they reliable observers? Were they in the area to see the event? I know there's been a lot of, well, over time, sometimes they're broadcasted court cases, right? And someone gives this long story and they say, were you there to even see it? No, I wasn't actually there to see it. Okay, so that's the opportunity, the opportunity. What about the accuracy and the consistency of their claims? So accuracy and consistency, number four. Are the details of their story consistent? Do they fit with the setting and the circumstances and the other eyewitness accounts? And you could list off things. Does it fit with historical, geographical, cultural, economic, or language details? So we're we're digging deep here. So bear with me. And then motivations. Do they have a motivation to fabricate a lie? What would they gain from, from believing or not believing this claim? Why did they believe what they were saying? What could they lose for believing that? Then you have collaboration. So collaboration. Did anyone else see the same events and confirm the same details? Was there a reason for a group of people to make a conspiracy or to mislead others? Then you have alternate explanations or alternative explanations. What alternate explanations and evidence were opponents claiming? Maybe there was a different explanation for what happened. Were the witnesses sincerely mistaken? Maybe they misinterpreted what they saw. Was there a better explanation? 
were claims made just to contradict the resurrection based on skepticism, but no evidence. So they, uh, even the Pharisees said, oh, well, they stole the body or something. Well, do you have evidence for that, or are you just making up an explanation? Next, you can put down persecution. Persecution. Did they face opposition or persecution for their beliefs? Why were they opposed for those beliefs? What did they or could they lose for their beliefs? Did they or could they have changed their beliefs? So if they faced opposition, could they have said, Oh, yeah, that didn't really happen. Life is too hard for me now. I'll just give up that belief. And then finally, perseverance. Perseverance. Did they persevere in their beliefs? How long did they believe this? For the rest of their lives? Did any of the eyewitnesses or the first witnesses go back on their testimony? So as we go through this list, and I'll make it brief, just going through these questions, we will ask each one of these specific points. And like I said, it will be brief. So first there was Cephas, who was Peter. We ask about his background. He was a disciple, of, a first disciple of Jesus, one of the inner ones who was following him. His background was that he was raised as a Jew. He believed that telling the truth was a virtue. He had opportunity to see the resurrection. That's what he claimed. He said, I saw this. What he was claiming was accurate and consistent with all the details of the time and even the collaboration, the other witnesses who claim the same thing. What were his motivations? Well, at first, Peter did not believe it, but then, as he claims, Jesus appeared to him, and then he believed in the resurrection. And then, as he goes on, there's not a better alternate explanation for his life. He faced severe persecution and was martyred for his faith, but he believed it all the way to the end. And the simple detail, as we're looking at, that Jesus rose again from the grave. He checks out every question that we asked our witnesses, as I just went through. Then it says that he appeared to the twelve, so the original twelve disciples, Judas, minus Judas, and then Matthias joined them, that he also saw the resurrected Christ. They also check out on all of those questions, background, character, opportunity, motivations, all of that. And then even with the twelve, it's amazing that those who look at eyewitness testimonies, they say the collaboration idea that it's very hard to stay consistent with a lie if the original twelve actually made up the resurrection story, that not one of them went back on their testimony as some type of conspiracy theory. In verse 6, it says, Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, those who remain, but some have fallen asleep. So Paul makes this claim, as, as David was talking about last night. Okay, he says there were hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. They spread out all throughout the ancient world. If you want to find one of them, or, or even meet someone who met one of them, then they said that, this, that Jesus was raised from the dead. We answer all those same questions in the affirmative, all the way down the line. That there was not a good alternate explanation, and those who saw Christ held on to their testimony. In verse 7, then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. So James is a great witness. This is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. I asked the question, you know, how well do your siblings know you, right? They know you better than, than most will. And so even James, who was his half-brother, he grew up with Jesus. He was skeptical at first. His family came to Jesus while he was doing ministry. Remember what they said? Hey, you're, it sounds like you're going crazy here. Why don't you come home? and stopped doing ministry. So he was skeptical. He didn't believe the claims and the resurrection of Christ. But from history, we know that he then did believe. 
He wrote the book of James. It says that he became a leader in the Jerusalem church, that he was a very devout man, and then he was also martyred for his faith, his faith in Christ and the resurrection. It says to the apostles, so similar to the Disciples, those who were sent out by Christ, they held on to their testimony all the way to the end and had upstanding character and opportunity to see it. And then, in our last point, the fourth reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we'll make this short, that it was believed by an opponent. It says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me, Paul speaking here, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we preach, and so we believed. We remember the salvation account of Paul on the road to Damascus. Christ confronted him. He saw the resurrected Christ after the time that these original witnesses did. But his entire life was changed. His entire life was dedicated to proclaiming the gospel. He wrote 13 of the letters in the New Testament. We have a lot of information about his personal testimony, which is recorded several times and many more details throughout his writings. We would answer all of the questions about the witnesses in the affirmative for Paul when we know Paul's background and character and opportunity, his consistency, uh, how much persecution that he faced. Even here, they were denying the resurrection and and how much he suffered uh, on behalf of that message. Paul was also a specialist witness. He had trained uh, basically to the level of getting a doctorate in Jewish studies in the Old Testament. And he said, no, what happened with Christ, what happened with the Messiah dying and rising again, fits with Scripture. He was also, as the point says, an opponent witness. He was a hardened opponent to Christ and to Christians. He didn't want to believe it. He wanted to attack and persecute Christians. But then the best explanation for why his whole life changed and why he became zealous for Christianity is because he saw the risen Christ when he was confronted on the road to Damascus. And so the case is made here. The case is made from the evidence from history, from these eyewitnesses that Paul would powerfully say that Everyone who is claiming that they saw the resurrection, they stayed consistent with their testimony, that that gospel message spread all the way from Jerusalem, we know all the way to Rome within a few decades afterwards, and they never gave up the uh, proclamation that Jesus rose from the dead. So just to wrap it up here, as they say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And if we're thinking about history, if we're thinking about reason, if we're thinking about the records that we have written in the Bible, we do have extraordinary evidence. And that's what we need, right? That I wouldn't ask all of you or any of you to believe, to stake your eternal destiny and your resurrection life on something that was not firmly rooted. Firmly rooted in history, firmly rooted in truth, firmly rooted in these eyewitnesses who proclaimed from the very beginning that Jesus rose from the dead and that that's the gospel message for us. And so that's the defense that Paul makes for us in the first verses here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word as it answers our questions, gives us a powerful defense gives us powerful reasons to believe for those who investigated, for those who saw. And our hearts are just built in confidence as we hear this message this morning. We thank you, God, that you have provided that for us. 
that it fits into your plan. That's the puzzle piece right in the middle, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that's the good news, and for those who want to investigate, for those who want to learn more, that information is available too. I pray that this confirms our hearts in salvation. That these amazing verses here, the very core of it, from the very beginning of Scripture, that your Son Christ would die for our sins. That He would rise again on the third day and give us hope of resurrection life. We thank you, God, for that. Uh, Again, that confidence and faith would grow. And that maybe salvation for the first time would happen here as they hear the simple gospel message. We thank you, God, that you address our doubts. That you give us the truth that we need. That you give us the evidence. And help us, God, to examine ourselves. What is going on there with our doubts? Or what what evidence or convincing do we need to believe that the central fact of history is that your son rose again from the grave to give us hope over death? Confirm this in our hearts as we continue to look at this theme at camp. In Jesus' name, amen.